sing about love and war I don't really know what I'm saying I've been in love and I've seen a lot of war Seen a lot of people praying They pray to Allah and they pray to the Lord And mostly they pray about love and war Welcome, everybody, to episode two of the Children's Crusade podcast. I'm Jake Marzuski, and I'm here with Maxwell's son and Pat Swanson. And just like last episode, we'll be discussing Kurt Vonnegut's novel, Slaughterhouse-Five. And this episode will be going a little different route. We will be covering Vonnegut's use of literary devices and elements in chapters four to six. And we'll be also covering Vonnegut's political discussion mentioned in these chapters, as well as an analysis of the relationships in the novel and current day love and relationships in society. So yeah, let's get to it. first segment we'll be discussing uh, the use of literary devices and elements in the text by Kurt Vonnegut and we'll start out with symbolism because that seems to be a very uh, prevalent literary element that he uses and the first one I'd like to point out is like the radium dial that he mentions in chapter four I think it was ah yes it was radium right and I, I feel like that has an overarching symbolism but I don't think it has been really revealed yet no, no. I think we're just supposed to, like, watch out for it. Really? But I did like how they compared it to Russian prisoners' faces. Yeah. And, like, the radium dial, like... Radium dials, like, in real life, they're clocks or watches that, like, glow in the dark, and they're obviously made out of radium. So, do, would you guys, like, like to hypothesize about, like, what that could mean in the future? Uh, in the future, i say it has to do with some time travel nonsense. You know, because it's a clock, and if it's right. a clock, things tend to happen to clocks with time being messed up and whatnot. Yeah, I think, I think that's a pretty good, pretty good guess, especially because they do make the direct mention of a watch having a radium dial in chapter five. Oh yeah, yeah, and I also, because didn't he say? Did he say the uh, Russians' like faces were glowing almost? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and yeah, I suppose you could say. He that. said, he said, um, the man was all alone. Yeah, talking about a Russian, he said, the man was all alone in the night, a rag bag with a round face, round flat face that glowed like a radium dial. That could be represent. In my opinion, it could like represent like death, because maybe his like face was glowing, like he stood out. Obviously, he's not healthy, mm-hmm. but I don't know, like. Obviously, it could also represent time travel, like you said, but I, in my opinion, it could also represent, like, incoming death. As and the Russians weren't treated very well in World War II. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I think that there is some connections, definitely, of the radium dial representing near death, because in Chapter 5, uh, he, he writes, there were more starving Russians with faces like radium dials, so yeah. 
I, I don't exactly know what a face like a radium dial means, but I, I can't imagine that it's a, a good thing. Maybe it's, maybe it's like a face working against time, like because mm -hmm. their, their death is impending and it's, it's pretty certain that they won't be around for too long, that you can see that they don't have much time left just by looking at their face. Mm -hmm. yeah. And also in like a literal sense too, like their faces are like, I think I believe that the radium dial clocks are like, they glow up in the dark so they're bright green. So do you think it could also mean like, their faces like they look sickly almost, like they look green in the face? I think that could also be taken in like a literal sense. Yeah, that definitely could reason. have something to do with it. Yeah, certainly, certainly. Yeah. And uh, another, mention of symbolism in the text, I think would be when he talks about mustard gas and roses. I know he mentioned it a few times in chapter one, but he also mentions it again in chapter four when he's talking about a drunk guy and he said he could like smell his breath over the phone, mustard gas and roses. Mm -hmm. So uh, obviously it represents war with the mention of mustard gas, but what else do you guys think it represents or symbolizes? Well, roses are a very pleasant scent. Right. So possibly a familiarity with alcohol. I think that's an interesting contrast then, because you mentioned roses are often associated with good smells and mustard gas not so much. So the fact that when he talks about being able to smell the drunk man on the other end, he says he smells like mustard gas and roses. So I think that's a, an interesting uh, comparison that he, he sets up there of two things associated with opposites. And I think that if we're talking about war and symbols in the book, I think we should talk about that, uh, the bird singing uh, Poo-Tweet. Oh, yeah. I, I believe I mentioned in the last episode, too, about how, like, uh, after, like, a massacre, like, the, the only thing that you can hear is the birds, and it's, it's singing. And it kind of represents how, again, people are desensitized to war, desensitized to violence, and they just say the same thing over and over about, like, it's unpreventable. I, th deal with it I think that also kind of works with what we were talking about last episode with the um what did we say the fatalism or? no no the the part where we were talking about how he'll say something super serious and then oh yeah the tone the tone it, I think that kind of has to do with the tone as well where it's just such a stark contrast where, you, where you'll go from um, something in war to a, a bird saying pootie weep which is obviously not a very serious uh, thing and then I think another interesting use of symbolism that I've noticed quite a lot throughout these first couple chapters is the um, the blue and ivory feet. Yeah. There's been a lot of mentions of that, and it doesn't seem to be specific to one character. Um, what are your guys' interpretations so far of the, the, the feet? Uh, that, I definitely will say, is sort of a fatalistic thing again. If only because when it's your time to die, your feet are blue and ivory. Yeah. But when it's not your time to die, you're not going to die even if your feet are. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it's simple. It's just a representation of death or a foreshadowing of death, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. It's just it's, it's just you so, so con uh, consistently, though. Like, in the yeah. matter of two pages, it'll say, he looked down at his bare feet there, blue and ivory. Billy Pilgrim patted downstairs on his blue and ivory feet, but this is not, um, this is when he's about to be abducted by the, the Trail Famadorians, I believe, 
and um, I mean he's not dying there right so perhaps it's a metaphorical death yeah when he's abducted by the Trakeldemorians he uh, is admittedly losing a pretty big part of himself he has to learn that he really isn't that big of a fish even in a really really just small pond he and another time his feet are blue and ivory is when his daughter is coming in to check up on him. You know, his feet are blue and ivory from the cold. And that's when he's losing some of his dignity. He's, he's dying more than once here. Just not necessarily dying, dying. Right. And, and go ahead, another more literal connection to death that's made that I, I'm just looking at now is... Um, on page 277, he says his feet were blue and ivory. It was all right somehow, his being dead. And he's talking about um, the dead hobo there. So maybe it does have uh, more to do with death than I originally thought. Yeah. And Maxwell, I think you brought up an interesting point there about metaphor and metaphor of death in particular. And I think another example of that is in chapter 4 when uh, they're talking about the people on the train car. And he says they're liquid and solid when referring to like life and death in my opinion like they're like moving he says they're liquid because they're like moving in like a big mass they're like flowing into this train car and flowing out of it but when the hobo dies he says he's solid he's he's no longer part of the liquid mass so it's clear that it represents life and death it's a metaphor for life and death but do you guys have any other thoughts about that perhaps a symbol of individuality yeah uh, where the liquid represents how, even though they're alive, they're a solid mass, indistinguishable from one another. Whereas when you're dead, you're a stone. You sink away from the crowd a little bit there. So, um, just some other literary devices. What did you guys notice along the lines of imagery? Metaphors kind of play with, um, symbolism in that sense, but what did you guys notice with imagery, metaphors, and uh, irony throughout these chapters? Uh, I also think that the blue and ivory you brought it is a good example of imagery, because it just makes you, like, it makes the reader recognize like, how bad Billy's situation is sometimes, and how like how close he could be to death at any, more, at any moment, anyone for that matter. Yeah, so. and I, I think that especially along with the timeline, he's he is dead at all times, just right. like the way the Tralfamadorians view time. And also, I, I do agree, I think that a lot of these um, uses of, of symbolism are also very good examples of um, imagery, like where you talked about how the radium dials are green and you, you, it helps you imagine the green in the, in the face of these starving and dying Russians. Yeah. And another symbol used that is wonderful imagery is the roses and the mustard gas. <coughs> If only because it just it gives you a very good impression of how just acrid, but also sort of sweetness in their breath, you know. Yeah, there's a lot of good um, descriptive symbols in this chapter, and also I think that there was a lot of irony that stood out to me, specifically where um, they're talking about how they're being shipped off to Dresden. Um, there's a, a quote on page 274 where it reads, 
Uh, you needn't worry about bombs, by the way. Dresden is an open city. It is undefended and contains no war industries or troop concentrations of any importance. And this is repeated a couple times just because um, they're trying to reassure their, their wives or people who care about them that, oh, don't worry, we're being shipped off to Dresden. And um, obviously we know that Dresden does end up being bombed. So the irony here is that they're they're certain that they're not going to be bombed in Dresden and that they're going to be safe. Mm -hmm. uh, Pat, did you did you want to bring up uh, another example of irony regarding like the coat that Billy got? Yeah, it was uh, or Maxwell. That was that was, was it. Yeah. Ah, yes. See, the coat had was given to Billy by the Germans, right? Right. But the German doctor very clearly is not very impressed that Billy's wearing this very small coat, this basically children's coat, on while he is, you know, just losing dignity here, even though the indignity was suffered by his countrymen. Yeah, and I, I think that these these mentions of, of irony that um, Vonnegut uses throughout these three chapters um, lead us very well into our, our next segment because a lot of the irony that he uses is he uses in a way um, for his political and social commentary, which we'll be talking about in our next segment uh, once we return after this quick break. we'll be talking about the politics of Kurt Vonnegut. Uh, while we're not going to be talking about his actual opinions per se, we're going to be talking about the presence of his opinions. Does it make, every, does it make sense? Makes yeah. sense. So I'd say that the foremost example of this is sort of the Jesus metaphor used in chapter 5 where Jesus is compared to a bum for the sake of example, and just saying that it's only an injustice that Jesus died because he had connections with the big man himself, God. Which is definitely a very political thing to say, no? Yeah, def definitely um, some very, very harsh to some people social yeah. commentary. What do you guys think? So when Vonnegut was writing this, he he included this there for a reason. Like he didn't he didn't just come up with this idea and put it in here just just for fun. I mean, what what do you guys think is his um, purpose here in deciding to make this this kind of social commentary on an entire religion that might turn away some of his possible audience? I think it's part of his message of people ignoring deaths, even though all deaths are essentially equal, yes? Yeah. When uh, Jesus dies, you know, you have an entire 50-day holiday dedicated to his one death. Right. 
But when an entire city of basically innocents are bombed, you barely have a puff in the wind. Yeah, I completely agree. It's like playing out the hypocrisy of society. And it's exactly what you said. It's another, like, fatalist argument there that, like, the deaths of innocent people don't matter, but religion is regarded as the most, like, important thing to some people. Well, I think that's an even more interesting point you make there, Maxwell, because some people's interpretations of so it goes is playing on how we value some deaths more than others. And I think that um, this is maybe not even more of a religious um, criticism. I, I don't think that this is included because Kurt Vonnegut is, is really adamant about reforming the Bible to make it more, more dramatic. I think that it's more so um, highlighting the fact that um, some deaths, like you said, how we have the Pentecost and the 50-day holiday after uh, one person's death, it's regarded so much more than the deaths of many innocents in a bombing um, just because of... And I, I think that the connection that he makes about Jesus being related to God is more so analyzing um, the power dynamic and how more important people's deaths are regarded um, or um, treated more reverently and uh, respected more than the deaths of a common person. And so I think that by saying Jesus should have been made a common person, I, I think that while it is a like a, a, I guess a literary criticism of the Bible, I think that it's also a criticism of if um, Jesus was just a normal person, then maybe we would um, be more respectful and reverent of the deaths of, of normal people in society and not hold some people to higher standards than others. I uh, agree with you perfectly, Pat. It's perfectly. And it's this cavalier attitude that Kurt Vonnegut uses about not actually caring if he uses Jesus, if he offends someone by, like, including weird sort of sexual things and sort of... I don't want to say immature things, but definitely things that were more meant to entertain himself than anything else. Yeah. And I'd kind of like to add what, to what Pat was saying. I think another like purpose of bringing that up is like critique like the religion as a whole and its followers, again, for one reason, because you're putting this one person's death on a pedestal as compared to like millions of other people who got. Yeah. And, well, go ahead, Maxwell. And even in the analogy, it does mention, you know, how Jesus as a bum, no one would care if he died until God says that now he's the inheritor of his whole kingdom, and then people would care. So I just think that's a bit interesting. Yeah, that's, that's definitely interesting, and I think that this talk about how people treat deaths is, a, is another type of irony that is used in these chapters, and... Um, a bit, a bit differently though, more of a political commentary when um, Vonnegut is talking about uh, the bombing of, of Dresden. And I, I mentioned one of the quotes in our last segment about how these people are um, like right, it's, it's the irony how the people are, are writing home to their wives and loved ones about how they, they need not worry because cause Dresden would never be bombed. And then as we know, Dresden was bombed. Oh, certainly, certainly. And Heck, there's even more things about uh, how, say, 
the aliens, they think that the closest approximation to TV oh, that the, is the two cowboys yeah. killing each other, yeah. and it's just the one picture. And it's sort of that style of, and it was mentioned in the first first chapter too about how they need to see things through the eyes of an alien to really gain a perspective on things. Right. And I also found it interesting that Billy was like kept in a zoo, basically, like a habitat of a person on Earth. Like, do you think it represents anything about like society or? I think that Billy having a sort of contentment living this lifestyle does say something more about society though, yes? Right. Where he's in essentially a rat cage, he knows he's in it, but he's content sitting there for a good six months to a macrosecond, it's difficult to say. Yeah, and, and he, he, he becomes very accepting of, of this life um, towards towards uh, the uh, the end, at least. I mean, Billy's a pretty easygoing person, and he, but uh, just just the one specific that I remember from the chapters is how they bring in that that young um, actress, movie star, and how she's she's very panicked about this and being put in front of all of these these aliens who are who are doing things that she's never seen before and operating on completely different dimensions than her and. And Billy's just telling her it's okay, it's okay, and he just he just accepts this lifestyle. And yeah, yeah, it's uh, this sort of general acceptance towards very absurd and probably very concerning things that uh, make up a good portion of this. So. Yeah, and I I think that that could be um, connected to just kind of people's acceptance of their situations and um i don't i don't mean to relate it back to just acceptance of violence again but that is just a very central theme and i think like with the the bombing of dresden how it's just just accepted and just to just to backtrack a little um on that what do you think that his purpose of including this this irony of the bombing of dresden was do you think that it was just kind of a to throw to throw shade at um the government type thing or do you think that there was um a, a deeper meaning there because he he very intentionally does use this irony of how everyone assumed that dresden would be safe and how it's like oh they wouldn't they would never bomb civilians type thing and then it, it paints them in this, in this very negative light that they do end up doing it so do you think that this is just a a very direct political commentary yeah i think it's it's like exactly what you said, kind of like bashing the government for doing this completely unnecessary act on this city. This like, it's not even important for the war, but it's just this cultural center, I believe, that had just a lot of art and architecture. It was like valued, and they just completely bombed it for no apparent reason whatsoever. And I think it also, like points, touches on the fatalist sense, how like all this violence and warfare just, it just seems to be a common part of the war. A although part of the world. Although I believe that this is actually a little less important than maybe some other things. Right. Because in the first chapter, Kurt Vonnegut, as Kurt Vonnegut says that he intended to just make a war novel, and Dresden is part of the war he served in. Right. So 
I think it's more of a crime of convenience, really. And then the themes blossomed around it rather than anything else. Mainly because that's just what he experienced rather than any grand symbol of anything. Yeah, and then just kind of building off what you said with themes, another common theme throughout these three chapters um, was the topic of, of love, which hadn't really been touched on um, prior to this. So that kind of just leads us into our next segment where we're going to examine the, the theme of love and uh, relationships in current society in our, in our next segment right after this break. chapters uh, four through six we start to see the development of the between Billy and Valencia and uh, the reader the reader gets some more understanding into how they got together and Billy's thoughts on their relationship so just to start off what are your guys interpretations or opinions on their relationship as we know it so far uh, I oh go ahead Max Okay. It's certainly rather crude, their relationship, uh, you know, for the few times you really see her. They really only emphasize her weight and how fat she is. Yeah, I, I noted that too while I was reading how there's a, yeah. a bit of fat for uh, Valencia. Yeah, and I wanted to point out too, is he's just like, the narrator is like really straightforward with it, with like Billy not wanting to be in a relationship with her because i think in chapter five like it literally says billy did not want to marry ugly valencia and he just caught the narrator just calls her ugly like straight up so i found it very interesting about that and that's literally all he ever says right Right. yeah so that was going to be my follow-up question but i think you guys answered it that um their relationship does not operate around love and um because it doesn't, what do you guys think the, the main motivating factor is and what does that say um, about relationships in the real world? Is that, a, is that a reflection how Billy is really just in this relationship because her father has connections in the optometry world? Uh, yeah, I think so. Because like, relationships have almost become like a market at this point, like a marketable thing. And it's like seen with like dating apps and stuff as just people's main goal is to just be in a relationship because it can get them like perks and like their social lives or something. So it's not really, not many people are like trying to get in a relationship to find like a true love. Just people might just be getting it for like their own desires or just to get better treatment or stuff like that. Yeah. And you can see that through like Tinder, all these other dating apps. About yeah. Relationships have become markets. Something that you can purchase with money and things of that nature. And I think another issue with dating apps is that it really pushes um, this importance that is set on a, a physical attraction to someone. Um, when you develop a real, real relationship with someone, um, it's usually based further than um, 
just a physical attraction. Like um, in Socrates, he, he was, there was one time where he was addressing a dinner party and he gave a, a talk about love that he had heard. And he lays out these different steps towards love. And the first step is um, a physical love, just the, the love of their body, the love of their appearance. And then um, there's multiple steps beyond that. But just in the second step, it's, it's loving them beyond their, their body and their appearance. And I think that a, a major issue with these dating apps is that, it, you know, you get, the, you get the bit of a description of the person that they can list. But a lot of people kind of just... Um, will write it to make themselves look good and really these you know the swiping right and swiping left is is really just operating on how attractive you think the person is and I think that's kind of damaging to um, the concept of what a a real real relationship is to a lot of people yeah definitely and I I just found an article by The Atlantic Uh, I think it's written by Ashley Fetters and Caitlin Tiffany and a quote from it is the idea of the dating market is appealing because a market is something a person can understand and try to manipulate, but fiddling with the inputs by sending more messages, going on more dates, toggling and retoggling search parameters, or even moving to a city with a better ratio isn't necessarily going to help anybody succeed on that market in a way that's meaningful to them. So I, I think she brings up an interesting point there because how like people can easily manipulate these systems to their own advantages and like it's not necessarily causing a better not giving you chances to find actual love or an actual relationship. So what do you guys think about that? Uh, yeah, I definitely agree with that. And that's basically, it's not exactly what Kurt Vonnegut says, mind you. Right. But when they talk about love, it's a lot of convenience. And it's, well, when he talks about love, it's a lot of convenience. It's a lot of, I'm marrying her for money or I'm marrying her for her looks. And the weirdest thing is, the only time they really talk about love is with the actress, uh, Montana Wildhack, where she was kidnapped and held in a cell with him for like three weeks. Not, not exactly the most romantic getaway, I'd say. And really the only reason that he takes interest in her is because um, he mentions how, how young and beautiful she was, and he doesn't really... Um, go on to explain any other reasons why he enjoyed being with her other than um, the physical um, the physical benefits that he saw in her and so just to kind of round it out with the, the central question here do you guys think that um, first in the in the book love is dead and do you think that in the the current relationship um spectrum that relation or that love is dead uh not necessarily and I, I think that applies to both the book and real life for the book at least like i feel like love on one side isn't necessarily dead because i feel like valencia has more regard for billy than billy does for her and i feel like she cares more for him and something along those lines but in real in the real world there's still like potential for a like, you know, real relationships to occur outside of just, like, loveless dating apps and stuff like that. Yeah, I definitely think you make a good point about outside in the real world. But I think that in the novel also, it's not necessarily that Valencia loves Billy. She just loves the idea that someone loves her. Right. That that kind of negates um, 
any love in their relationship because obviously Billy's not providing any into the relationship. And I think that Valencia doesn't really love Billy. She just loves the idea of being in a relationship with someone who, who she believes loves her because when um, we're reading um, the narration is, is telling us about how, how Billy hates how she's just eating all the time. And then when we see that they're on their, I believe it was their honeymoon. She honeymoon. says that she's going to lose uh, weight for him. And Billy says, no, you don't, you don't need to do that. I, I love you for who you are. And so I think that it's not really that, that um, she loves Billy. It's that she loves the idea of Billy loving her. Yeah, I think I understood something in the text, or misunderstood, excuse me, because you bring up, like, a very good point there that, like, nobody really ever wanted Valencia, and it's just exactly what she, you said, that she just pretty much wants to be loved, and Billy was her only option for that. And even then, Billy mentioning that he uh, loves her regardless of how she looks is because he can see into the future, and he knows it's really not that bad or at least acceptable according to his standards. Yeah, I thought that was that was pretty interesting. I, I don't know the direct quote, but he he just kind of says that their relationship was was to, like tolerable or okay for the most part and so he's he's able to deal with it. All right, and I think that brings us to a good place to stop for today. Thank you all for listening. Uh, our previous episodes could be found on Spotify, Anchor, and other podcasting listening platforms online. And yeah, that was the Children's Crusade podcast. See you guys later.